Uh, Monday, this past Monday, I went to the grocery store. Now, nothing particularly shocking about that statement, right? None of you are aghast at it. Um, but think back to last week, if you would. In the run-up to Christmas weekend, we had some very bad weather that kept most of us indoors and stuck, many of us anyway. And then, stores closed on Christmas Eve, closed early on Christmas Eve, and then were closed on Christmas Day. So Monday was the day that everyone in Portland went to the grocery store. And I'm pretty sure about, I don't know, 68% of them were in the one I was in. <laughs> pretty confident about that. And let me tell you, without any doubt, peace, joy, love, all of that Christmas good tiding stuff, gone. Out the window. It is amazing how quickly the tidings of comfort and joy leave. And we're back to elbowing people just to get a box of eggs or something like that. It was astonishing to watch. At one moment when I was there, I just, I just paused in an aisle, pulled my cart to the side and just watched people. No one was happy. No one was. The joy of Christmas just so easily slips through our fingers, doesn't it? As some of you know, I'm very fascinated by the concept of time, especially God's relationship to time. God's time is distinct from our time, and it's a mesmerizing question to consider how His time might, in fact, impact our time or reorient our time. The Christian calendar is part of that for us. It's part of that reorientation. Its purpose is for, for us to sense our time in a way that's not simply different from other calendars just for the sake of being different, but rather to experience the very time of God in the here and now. God's time is one where time's boundaries and contingencies are not absent, but rather they overcome. Gain overcomes loss in God's time. Peace dispels chaos. Hope is fully realized with God. Love overcomes fear and covers a multitude of sins. Indeed, all sin. God's time is where joy is not merely a cliché for Hallmark Christmas movies, but joy is the overflowing, exuberant, fueled by gratitude experience of something or someone that's just not of this world. Have you ever tried to imagine life after death? What it might be like? Sensations. Experiences. What does it feel like? What will it mean to experience something in the new heavens and new earth? Do you ever think about this? I think about this sort of stuff. We eat in heaven. How do we digest in heaven? Am I the only one who thinks about these sorts of strange things? When we experience something, 
Will we see it? Will we feel it? Smell it? Imbibe it? And then does it go away and we only retain it in our memory like we do now? Well, I don't think so. But if not, how do we retain it? Is that experience ever present with us in some miraculous way? Like we're never not experiencing it? Or is it maybe recalled by Christ or in Christ when the occasion requires it? I'm I'm fascinated by it. In the new heavens and new earth, will joy be constant? Will we always be exuberant? Or will it ebb and flow? Maybe not ebb and flow in terms of sadness and joy, but maybe ebb and flow between ecstatic joy and normal joy. I'm not entirely sure how it all works. I do know that in God's time, joy is not an occasional add-on to an otherwise monotonous existence. In God, in Christ, God's time is synonymous with ever-present joy, with ever-present exceedingly great joy, certainly compared to what we know now. Imagine that, what that might be like. Epiphany is on Friday, speaking of the Christian calendar. Friday this week. It's the twelfth day after Christmas. Epiphany is the manifestation of Jesus to the world, to the Gentiles. It's the Christian feast where we thank God that we were not excluded from God's family. We weren't left in the dark. We weren't on our own. We weren't left admiring God, yet blocked off from a way to Him. What a horrible reality if someone had no access to God, if God was for the elite or for the educated or what have you. But God has always been on a quest to bless the world at large, not just one segment of people. Epiphany may be an overlooked day in our year, but it sits right at the heart of the gospel of Jesus, and it is a cause for great joy, exceeding great joy. God always has been after the world as a whole. Remember, Israel was called to be God's representative to the world, right? They were to worship and live in such a way that the world would be blessed and would come to know the one true living God. Sometimes we get the impression that God in the Old Testament was intent on saving Israel and he could just give a rip about everybody else. Now that's not true. And we can certainly find ample evidence of this even in the Bible. In the Law of Moses, God made constant provision for the foreigner living among Israelites. People like Rahab and Jericho, Ruth the Moabite, all who wanted access to God through Israel. You may remember the story of Elijah, who was sent to the widow outside of Israel. And Jesus told this story, applying it by saying God was passionate for the non-Israelite. Jonah was sent to preach to Nineveh, the Gentiles, because of God's great love for that city, he said. And then in the New Testament, we see the pattern continue. Jesus visited the Samaritan woman at the well, 
And Paul was specifically commissioned to take the good news to the Gentiles. God's always been a God who so loved the world, not just Israel, not just those who are on the inside, so to speak. So Epiphany is the celebration that Jesus is the joy of the world, not just the joy for Americans or Jews or whites or Asians. Epiphany is the reminder that the good news is the reality that God's on a mission to build his family and bless the world. And he is relentless about it. I wonder what it is about our lives that causes us to miss out on God's joy. If he's so determined to reorient our time, to give us his life in the here and now, that joy in the here and now, what is it that bars us from fully enjoying it? Maybe there's a clue in our gospel reading for today. Matthew opens his gospel with a story about Magi embarking on a quest to find the king of the Jews. What an amazing way to begin. He tells the story of some Gentiles who went on a desperately long journey to find the king of the Jews who had been born. How did they know about him? Some sort of celestial revelation. It's weird, isn't it? Magi were like astrologers, but they were also known for dabbling in the dark arts. Even interpreting dreams, we're not entirely sure everything that they did. At the very least, they were interested in stars. I mean, think about it. Here were Gentiles who presumably had little or no access to the Hebrew Scriptures, no specifics to speak of, only a star or whatever that phenomenon was, and with that in hand, they take this very long journey to find a baby for the purpose of worship, to give the baby very expensive gifts, the sacrifice of time and money, months on the road in order to see a baby <laughs> that could not talk to them. I wonder if they really knew what they were after. I mean, we do. But did they? When they got to the place where Jesus was, incidentally, Matthew says nothing about a stable at that point. It seems that maybe Mary and Joseph were living in Bethlehem before moving back to Nazareth. When they got to the place where Jesus was, they were overjoyed, Scripture says. The tone is one of wild enthusiasm, exceedingly great happiness and joy that they had found the child. Does this strike you as odd in any way? I mean, here were astrologers, magicians, who traveled ages to get to see a Jewish king, and when they got there, their joy was uncontainable. And yet, his own people, his neighbors, Israel, 
would virtually ignore his arrival and eventually kill him. Oh, they knew, that is the Israelites, knew the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem because they told Herod that when Herod inquired, but there's no indication that they pursued this possibility with any interest or vigor. Certainly nothing like the Magi did. The most unlikely people, sinners, outsiders, people dabbling in the dark arts, on the most unlikely of journeys in order to worship a Jewish baby who couldn't possibly have known that he was the Son of God. No one could imagine something like that at the time. And all the while, his own people, his own family, quietly ignore him. One of the things we do here at In Town Church, church like ours, is um, when a child is born to Christian parents, uh, those parents will often bring that child forward for baptism, and they are baptized as a covenant child, a recipient of all of God's covenant promises. And then we nurture that child in the faith, and the child is taught to believe and follow Christ for life. And it really is a joy to see that faith get locked in and start to flourish in that little life. So that as they grow, all along the way, every little bit that they can take in about the faith, about Christ, they do. And they start to, to, to let it sink into their hearts. And that faith is growing. That seed that was planted at baptism grows and grows and grows. And, and then eventually, they become leaders in the church, and they become people who care for others, bless others. I mean, many of you, that's your story. You can't remember the time when you weren't part of the body of Christ involved in one way or another. And that's a story that we want. But one of the potential dangers of this reality is that the Christian life will become rather monotonous routine. Offering our worship to Jesus, like the Magi did, might become less than interesting. Do you think that's possible? Do you think it's possible to come into church and be bored? Just say no, just shake your head. It is possible. It often happens. Not here, but other places. <laughs> Rather than being thrilled beyond words that we enter into the presence of the King of Kings, we might begin to get more preoccupied with other things. Seating, lighting, music, carpet cover, stoles, the quality of the post-service coffee. It's a big deal. I know. Whether the services and the programs provided by that church are worth my time and especially my money. None of those are irrelevant questions. But they often rise to a level that just pull our gaze away from the cross. There's a reason that cross is so large. Have you ever thought about that? It dominates this room. 
It's saying, look here. Look at that. Focus there. Don't be caught up with all the other stuff. Yes, that stuff matters. Yes, we'll ask those questions along the way. But look at that. Note that the Magi weren't given gifts at Bethlehem. They brought them. They brought themselves. They brought their gifts. And they were wildly joyful and ecstatic about doing so. They, who knew only a fraction of what we know of that baby, were completely captivated by him. We know so much of who he is. And yet, we often battle the weekly demons of apathy and competition for a better church product. Of course, this isn't true for all of us, all of the time, by any means. It's just an observation that can become true for any of us at any time. There's another character in this story, the Magi. I don't know if there were three, however many there were. And that's sort of one character. The other character is, did you note that character? Herod, the villain, one of history's great villains. This guy was paranoid beyond what we can imagine today. Uh, he suspected his sons of usurping the throne, and he was so jealous of them that he executed three of his own sons. He even executed his wife because of his paranoia. He murdered most of his friends, and it was said in Herod's day that it was better to be his sow than his son. Pigs had a greater chance of survival around Herod than someone in his own family. That's who was ruling the day at Jesus' birth. Matthew says that when King Herod heard this from the Magi, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Yeah, I'll bet. When Herod's nervous, everybody gets nervous, right? Herod's response puts an accent on one of the key points that Matthew's trying to make. This isn't a quaint story about an ancient baby shower. It's a declaration right from the start that the king who lives in the palace and sits on the throne and has all the money and all the power is nothing compared to this lowly, stable-born peasant. Jesus is the real king. Joy is found in the most unlikely of places, isn't it? And we spend so much of our lives chasing after Herod's life, only to find ourselves empty and very sad. Some of you have read the book, um, Unbroken, about the life of Louis Zamperini. Yes, anyone? Yeah. A um, number of years ago, I watched a new special with uh, Angelina Jolie about the movie that she produced based on his life. Some of you may have seen that. She described how she was driven to the project, and she said she remembers 
is a very curious thing. I remember this very clearly. She says when she remembers lying in bed night after night, feeling empty and wondering about her purpose in life and what she could do for fulfillment. Remarkable, isn't it? It's just fascinating to think that someone with so much fame, so much money and power could feel so empty. But she is not alone. And you certainly don't have to be a Hollywood celebrity in order to feel empty of purpose and lacking of joy. And isn't it interesting that she was driven to a story about a man who found joy in this manger-born baby like Zamperini did? Here's a person in Jolie who's been living with all the comfort of Herod's life, yet she knows there must be more. So this is quite an epiphany story, isn't it? On the one side, we have the Magi, who are distant, unlikely worshipers on a passionate quest to find the king. And when they find him, he brings unspeakable joy. And on the other side, we have Herod, much closer to where we are, for whom the arrival of Jesus meant great fear. Joy for some, Fear for others. Why is it that this baby, this man, is a source for such exuberant, eternal joy for some and pure anger and fear for others? Here's how the Apostle Paul describes that phenomenon in 2 Corinthians 2. Thanks be to God, he says, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are, to God, the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are an aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. How could it be that as we spread the news of Christ to the world, it is joyful for some and fearful for others? Well, the difference is simply this. Where you're standing. To governments and school boards and university faculties, Jesus is a threat, a cause of great fear. But to the one who takes the long journey toward Jesus like the Magi, to the one who follows the strange signals God gives that point toward his son, there is wild, exceeding great joy. The story of the Magi doesn't make logical sense to us. The joy wasn't one of riches or luxury or convenience. It was unlikely and unexpected. Even now, it doesn't seem sensible that modern people could be 2,000 years removed from a baby in a manger and claim that that baby is the source of eternal joy. Yet this is the reality of God's time with us. And the question is, where do you stand? In a moment, we're going to come to the table for communion where we partake in the bread and the cup 
And by virtue of God's Holy Spirit with us, he mysteriously and spiritually unites us with the body of Christ. The purpose of the meal is union with God and the blessing of spiritual nourishment. But it also seems to be a visible way of understanding this dividing line between Herod and the Magi. For some of us, we come to the table with great joy and anticipation that we will be filled with life and spiritual nourishment. We love the taste of the bread and the cup. For others, the taste of this meal is bitter, so to speak, because our heart is not with the Magi or with Christ. On the surface, it seems rather foolish to think that coming into this room every week, singing unusual songs, reading some old ancient book, praying to a person we can't see, listening to an old, bald, white man, and chewing bread and sipping wine would somehow cause us exceeding great joy. Seems strange, doesn't it? But such is life in God's time. He is desperate to bless us with a joy that overcomes our temporal obstacles. And so he gives us himself. I think the Magi knew that. I think they knew that what they had found was someone who was giving his life. It was a different sort of king. I can't prove it. But I have no other way of explaining the joy that they had. That this baby, this person, this life was a life for us. And in this meeting, when we chew, and when we drink, and when we gather, it is that life that joy, that exceeding great joy that he is offering to you. Where do you stand? Let's pray.